And welcome to Texting Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kim, and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Texting Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading, there is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. Any of us during lockdown may have engaged in a degree of navel-gazing and introspection into life's big questions, but I imagine few of us did it so eloquently as to get our musings published. This is not true of today's guest, David Goldberg QC of Gray's Inn Tax Chambers, who in the world of tax law and tax disputes needs no introduction. I will therefore beg the forgiveness of both David and our listeners before I give one. To call David Tax Queen's Council is to miss a wonderful opportunity to use words like seminal and leading to say nothing of his masterful grasp of the technical aspects of this complex area of law. David joins us today to continue his musings on the evolution of HMRC and the increasing power that it wields. David, welcome to Taxing Matters. Thank you. During your musings published under the title Lockdown Thoughts, which I highly recommend to all of our listeners, you seem to be struck by the amount of power wielded by HMRC, which, particularly with the complexity and lack of clarity in our tax system, you characterised as too much. What drew you to this conclusion? It's something that I've thought all of my adult life, really. During lockdown, I had from time to time to pick up the yellow book, which contains the Taxes Acts and go through those bits that impose penalties. And I was struck by how many penalties can be imposed for completely innocent error. Thinking particularly of the requirement to correct and the penalties for errors relating to offshore matters, which are extreme and by any measure unfair. It's no doubt understandable that a state should say, we believe that if people do things offshore, there are many opportunities for evasion which don't exist if they do them onshore. And so we should have these broad measures which allow us to make sure we know what is happening. But nonetheless, there has to be some balance in that. If somebody does something offshore and originally at least believes that it has no UK tax consequences and then subsequently discovers that it it does, they really shouldn't be subjected to a 200% penalty, which is something that happens under the requirement to correct. Just too penal. It's like sending someone to prison for 50 years for stealing sixpence. The lack of clarity that you picked up on in your musings, is that a factor which is contributing to these unfairnesses? Yes, because sometimes you can't be sure what the tax consequences are or are supposed to be. Most of the requirement to correct will probably arise in relation to what are called the transfer of assets abroad provisions. And these are obscure. They've been around since 1936 with some adjustments, but 
they still have open many questions as to what they mean. For example, how do they apply where you have a husband and wife living in different countries? There's a real problem in understanding whether they apply, when they apply in that situation. And what about the remedy? How do we fix this? Fixing it is extremely difficult because I think it requires us to tear up our existing legislation. I'm afraid to say that when I started learning tax, the main Income Tax Act was the Income Tax Act 1952. The 1952 Act, if I recall correctly, had 463 pages in it. And it was relatively coherent. We now have, I'm not sure that anybody knows how many pages of legislation we have. Some accounts, it's 22,000 pages. Others may say it's eight or 9,000 pages. It's millions of words, and it's dense. You don't need such a complicated tax system. You can have a very simple tax system. The UK used to have what I think of as the standard imperial model, which was used in all the colonies, really, and is still essentially in use in Hong Kong. And it's very simple. It deals in principles. It doesn't answer all the questions. But essentially, it imposes a tax on profits. You then need quite a lot of case law to work out what is meant by the word profits. But essentially, you're conducting a principled search for a result, which is easy to determine rather than what we do in this country, which is spend ages arguing over badly drafted pieces of legislation. Another way of doing this is to change turnover taxes, which are much simpler. VAT, which is essentially a turnover tax, works much more easily than the direct taxes do. So you could change to that type of tax, but I'm not sure. I'm not saying VAT is a bad tax, by the way. It is not a good idea for all your taxes to be collected by that type of turnover tax. So how do we go about drawing these lines between the rights and the powers more fairly? I think you probably need some kind of watchdog that is very definitely outside the revenue. We do have an ombudsman for the revenue. I haven't heard any news of what the ombudsman has been up to recently. And the ombudsman sits firmly in Whitehall, or did last time I had anything to do with the ombudsman. I I always felt the ombudsman was too close to the revenue. I think you need some outsider who needs to change fairly often so they don't get embedded in the system to ask, is this fair? Because You only need the powers when the system is not accepted. If if people accept the system, then you don't really need the powers because people do what they're required to do. So I do quite a lot in Hong Kong, which has recently ruined its tax code by introducing provisions required by BEPS so that there are now complications in the Hong Kong tax code that weren't there two years ago or maybe three years ago. But the Hong Kong tax system is the most widely accepted tax system in the world. People pay their tax in Hong Kong. You get a tax return form to fill in. It's very simple to do. It's not as complicated as ours is. 
you don't feel oh, the burden that I have when you have to fill in your tax return form here. I won't say that it's a joy to pay tax in Hong Kong, but people don't mind it. That's partly a function of rate, and it's, I think, more a function of the ability to deal with it relatively easily. Not sure how you introduce that to a country like ours, but we do have all sorts of complications. If you take Hong Kong, it only taxes income which arises in Hong Kong. If income arises outside Hong Kong, there's no tax to pay. Now, nobody can tell you how much tax would be lost if we said we are not going to tax foreign profits. But I suspect it wouldn't be very much and that you could have the most tremendous liberalisation by saying we should only tax UK-based profits. And I think that one change would make everything a great deal simpler and easier without, I suspect, affecting the tax base very much. You mentioned earlier that the watchdog is needed to oversee the fairness of the system. What about the argument that that is the job of the courts? The courts have got very caught up in the idea of purposive construction, which is essentially the idea that people should pay tax rather than that they shouldn't pay tax. Quite a new idea for courts to have, believe it or not. Courts used to have the idea that the statute was there to define where the tax was and where the tax wasn't. And that if you could put yourself in the area where the tax wasn't, you didn't have to pay any tax. But nowadays, when the court finds an area where there isn't tax, they then say to themselves, should there have been tax there? Did the legislature intend there to be tax there, lo and behold, they suddenly discover that where there didn't appear to be tax, there was tax. So it become quite embedded in our decisions that tax has to be paid. And when you find that tax has to be paid, you become less concerned with the protections which allow people to challenge administrative action the protections which you hope the law would give you are not always there. Is that a symptom of the moving away from the judicial activism of the 80s and 90s? It's a symbol of a different form of judicial activism, which has been expanding the tax net. It is very, very curious that if you're talking about the rights of immigrants and you're talking about the rights of people to have employment benefits or social security benefits, the courts come down on the side of the person who is looking for protection from the state. That doesn't happen where tax is concerned. Judicial activism is working in a different direction in favour of the state. How would you reply to anyone who said that HMRC's powers are needed to deal with the increasing complexity we have in society? The problem with giving administrators power is that they use it. If the courts aren't stopping them from using it, then 
you're very much at risk of harassment. I think that is a greater worry for a country than concern that a few people may not be paying all the tax that they possibly could be paying. So what led you to these conclusions on your musings? I have always had a natural rebellion against oppressive power of the state. I grew up in Plymouth, a cavalier town during the Civil War. And when the monarchy was restored, King James II built a citadel on Plymouth Hoe where the guns face out over the town rather than out to sea to make sure that the citizens behave. I didn't like that. Not that I was terribly worried by the guns, but I didn't like the state being in charge. I always felt that people who live in the country have to be in charge. Parliament allows far too much power to be given to all sorts of administrators. Just look at the powers of inquiry that the revenue. Of course, the revenue must be able to ask you questions, but this is burdensome. It goes too far. Penalties are too severe. The threats that can be made are too great to have a balanced tax system. The obtaining of balance is an unbelievably difficult thing to do. To balance the tax system between the rights of the taxpayer and the obligations of the taxpayer, rights of the tax collector, and the obligations of the tax collector, it is extremely difficult. You have all sorts of penalties for the taxpayer. Where are the penalties for the official of the revenue who oversteps the mark? Perhaps there should be a penalty for improper use of the powers. I think there once was a penalty in the Taxes Management Act, which has long since been taken away for the inspector who misused the power. It was a bit more limited than that. All trace of it, of course, is gone now. Is that something which is symptomatic of the evolution that you've seen over the tax system over your career? Yes, I think so. And are there notable examples of that which stick out in your mind? Yes, cases where the revenue have overused their powers have formed a significant proportion of my work. There was a case a long time ago where the revenue raided a firm of accountants and I got an injunction stopping the raid, which they breached. had a huge amount of fun over that. What was the end result? Did they learn any lessons? For years, they behaved much, much better. They nearly got sent to prison for that breach of the injunction. I had a judge who was very robust. Not that it was difficult for him to be robust. He made an order. And they just breached it. And any judge has to respond to that, which this judge did. Told them they had to come and explain their conduct in person, that he was considering custodial sentences. Is that something which has been lacking then, that robustness where things quite clearly have gone wrong? As I say, after that episode, the revenue behaved well for years. I haven't heard of a case in which they've behaved quite badly since. To be a little hackneyed, there are tides in the affairs of men. There was a time when uh, things were going in favour of the taxpayer, and now they've swung back and are going against the taxpayer and in favour of the revenue. And no doubt, at some point, that will change again. It does require the revenue to overstep the mark, and that can happen, of course, particularly when they've been having a string of successes. They get carried away. 
is this something which you think might happen as a result of lockdown? Everyone has taken the time to get very enthusiastic about their positions. Lockdown for the lawyer has had very little effect at all, apart from working from home instead of from chambers. I hardly noticed we were in lockdown. The same kind of work arrived, got done in the same kind of way, and we moved on to the next things. My musings, although I have attributed them to lockdown, they're general musings that go on from time to time over the whole of my career, but particularly where I see the revenue misbehaving. Has the type of misbehaving that you've seen changed over time or is it still the same sort of thing, just wearing different disguises? It's essentially the same sort of thing, wearing different disguises. And what about the themes that you would draw to other practitioners' attention? What is it that someone looking at your career and thinking... That is something that I would like to emulate. What are the types of themes that you would draw to their attention for further study? One of the best bits of advice I was ever given was that you should not drink fine white burgundy too cold. I'm not quite sure how one adapts that to tax practice, but what it's worth. I think you have to be fearless. It's not easy to stand up in court and plead an unpopular cause. But you have to be prepared to do it. I haven't really ever engaged in any form of political activity. I sometimes wonder if I should have done more of that. But I don't think it would have got anywhere. I think it's better for a lawyer to use the law to do whatever he or she can to promote the result they want to get. I would quite like to get some piece of legislation struck down on the basis that it's completely unfair, for example, but that's an exaggerated ambition in most cases. Is there a particular piece of legislation which springs to mind in your desire for it to be struck down for being unfair? Uh, All the penalty legislation at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Just, do you know, let's take another penalty, the 5% penalty for late payment. God's sake, the revenue are getting a more than commercial rate of interest on the late payment. They don't need a penalty to force people into paying. Of course, there are some crooks out there. I have heard that what are called loan schemes are still being sold by up to 3,000 outfits who are telling people this will enable you to save tax when it has no chance whatever of saving tax. None at all. Completely crooked activity, which is used as an excuse for changing our tax code and imposing more penalties. No doubt that type of activity is one of the things behind the enablers penalty. piece of legislation that we certainly should be ashamed of because it's completely contrary to any principled rule of law-based society. How so? Because it's intended to stop you getting legal advice. I cannot go round the world holding my head up as a person from a country which observes the rule of law while that blot is on our statute book. That's a shame. It used to be quite nice to go round and say, I'm coming from the country which is a leading exponent of how you run a rule of law-based country. And we pass laws that say, if you appeal this, you pay a penalty for appealing. If you 
get that piece of advice wrong, you pay a penalty. So what would you like to see change in the next five to 10 years if you had three wishes? I would like to see a wholesale simplification of the tax code. I think if we went back to some basic principles, we could come up with a fairly simple, short tax code. There's all sorts of difficulties in the period of transition. Let me forget those. I would like the simplicity of the tax system to lead to a sense of people being at ease with the tax system so that the tax payment is not a frightening experience. And the third thing, which would follow more or less automatically from the first two, is that you get rid of all the penalties or most of the penalties. You, you only have penalties for really bad behaviour. One can look to the editorials of 150 years ago and see evidence of the same concerns and tensions being discussed. So, for example, people mid-1800s complaining about the language used by the youth of today. Those complaints really haven't changed that much. Is that true in the case of the tax codes that we have today? Or have we done something new and different? Well, we're living in a different society. When I started in practice, I think the top rate of tax on unearned income was 98%. There was one year when it was 104%. And the rate on earned income was 83%. And we took all this for Granted, it was the cost of the war, and we were paying for spitfires well up until the 1980s. And we all accepted that. It's fine. Of course, we paid 98% tax on unearned income, had to pay for the spitfires. And then Mrs. Thatcher came in and cut the top rate of tax from 98% to 40%. My goodness, the economy exploded. Nowadays, we're paying 45%. It feels like a high rate when you've been used to 40%. So I think we do tend to think about tax a bit differently from the way we thought about it before. And the sense of social obligation is not quite as great as it was, I think, when I started working. And you can argue about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing which goes a little bit beyond my career, into quite a large area. As Justice Holmes once said, tax is the price we pay for civilization. And if you think of tax that way, well, then, of course, paying it is a noble thing. But actually, it may not be the price we pay for civilization. Maybe the way we have chosen to pay the price for shared services. For example, once upon a time, if we wanted to send someone into space. And we thought that was the job of the state and we all contributed to it by taxes. And now we have discovered that Mr. Bezos can put himself into space with his own money. And actually, we don't really need the state to do that. I think that does open up the question whether tax is really necessary to pay for all the things it's used to pay for. And when you start thinking about tax, that way, it starts to feel a bit more burdensome than it did, and it 
raises questions about whether the system is properly balanced and fair. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this week's episode. Thank you very much to David Goldberg QC for sharing his insights on the evolution of HMRC's powers and a few other musings along the way. You can find David through the Grey's Inn Tax Chambers website, www.taxbar.com. If you have any questions for me or for David, or any topics you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us on taxingmatters at rbc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. As ever, a big thank you goes to Josh McDonald, who does all of the work pulling each episode together. Our music is from musical genius Andrew Waterson, who also produces each episode. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. If you like Taxing Matters, why not try RPC's other podcast offering, Insurance Covered, which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry, hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield, and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and our website. If you like this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. And remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening, and talk to you again in two weeks. Thank you.